Today, as we begin our study on the book of Jonah, the focus is not on Jonah himself, but rather the Ninevites. The Ninevites are described as a great and wicked city. But we're going to see in this particular portion of the scripture that this city is radically transformed. They become a different people. They become a different city. Certainly, as we think of our nation, as we think of our world, we would love to see it radically transformed. We would love to see it to be more of a godly place filled with godly people. This passage teaches us that there is tremendous hope for transformation, not only of individuals, but even cities and, yes, nations. So as we think about our nation this morning, one of the things that we can hope and pray for is its transformation. So let us look at the transformation that took place in the city of Nineveh. First and primary, the transformation that was that took place was that they believed God. They believed God. This is the pathos of the section. Their having believed God is the ground and explanation for all of the rest of the transformation. It all flows out of, stems from, their having believed God. Notice Jonah chapter 3, beginning to read at verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now these words, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed God. That is a very cryptic way to describe the Ninevites' response to Jonah's preaching. They believed God. When it states that they believed God, we have to ask ourselves the question, what was it that they believed about God? What was the change that took place? What was the basis of the transformation? Well, I submit to you there are at least three things that we know from our text. First, is that they believed that Jonah's message came from God. They believed that Jonah's message came from God. If you notice in verse 4, it states, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out. They heard the message from Jonah, but they accepted the truth that the message ultimately came from God. In Jonah chapter 3, verse 3, it said, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Jonah was preaching God's word. But what was unique is that the people accepted the message of Jonah as God's word. This is how preaching is to be understood 
And this is how preaching must be understood if it's going to be effectual. It has to be taken not simply as the word of man, but as the word of God. And certainly the preacher is responsible and culpable for preaching truly God's word. But they accepted the message of Jonah as coming from God. Secondly, they believed not only the fact that the message came from God, but they believed the message itself. That is, they believed that they were going to be destroyed. If you look at verse 4, it tells us that Jonah called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This word overthrown is the very same word that is used in conjunction with God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. They too are described as being overthrown. In Genesis 19, 24 and 25, it reads this. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities. It's not only the same English word, it's the same Hebrew word. But if you remember the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, even Lot's future sons-in-law did not believe that Lot's message that the city was going to be destroyed. In Genesis chapter 19, verse 14, it reads, So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to the sons-in-law to be jesting. They didn't heed the warning. They didn't believe the message. They didn't think it was true. They didn't think that destruction was coming. But the Ninevites accepted the message of their coming destruction as true. They believed its reality. If you look down at verse 9, it says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. They were anticipating that they would be destroyed. They were anticipating that they would perish. So they're going to cry out to God for deliverance because they believed the message. They believed the judgment was coming. All too often, people do not believe the word of God when it speaks of coming judgment. In our day and age, we can proclaim the necessity of salvation. We can talk about the need for people to repent and get right with God. But all too often, God is viewed as so loving, so merciful, so kind, so gracious, that no one really needs to be forgiven. Uh, that there is no such thing as judgment. There is no such thing as a hell. There is no such thing as condemnation. There is nothing to fear. We can continue on in our lives without repentance, without change, without calling upon God. And there is no fear of consequence. So the Ninevites were unique because they believed the message. They believed that judgment was coming. And then thirdly, the Ninevites believed that the reason that they were going to be destroyed 
was due to their wickedness. Let me say that again. The Ninevites believed that the reason they were going to be destroyed was due to their wickedness. They understood it was because of the evil that they had done. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, the original commission of Jonah by God said this, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Why? For their evil has come up before me. Jonah must have, in some way, conveyed to the people the reason that they were being destroyed was due to their being evil. It is not explicitly said in that very brief statement that we have that he said that in 40 days you'll be destroyed. I think we can assume that they heard more than that simple phrase, that there must have been more that Jonah revealed to them. We don't know what it is, but we can at least assume that he made it clear that the reason they were going to be destroyed was because they were evil. And the reason we know that he made that clear is given to us in verse 8. If you look at Jonah chapter 3, verse 8, this is the edict of the king. This is what the king says to the people. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. And now these words, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. The king calls to the people and says, let everyone turn from his evil way. There are eight different Hebrew words that are used, that are translated into English as the word evil. The, wor the word that is used in verse 8 of chapter 3 is the same word that's used in Jonah chapter 1, verse 2. God said they were evil. The king said we must turn from our evil ways. Therefore, they accepted the characterization that God made of them. They did not rationalize their behaviors. They did not stand up and protest that what God had said of them was untrue. They did not try to defend themselves and, and say that they were mistaken misunderstood that they basically were a good people that sometimes do bad things. But the king said, let everyone turn from their evil way, from their violence that is in their hand. So the Ninevites believed that the message came from God. The Ninevites believed the message that they were going to be destroyed. And the Ninevites also believed the reason for their destruction. Namely, that they were evil. They accepted the fact that what they had done was evil and their actions were characterized as violent. All too often, people are unwilling to accept the Scripture's characterization of ourselves. The Bible teaches us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But people don't want to accept their actions as sinful. They don't want to believe that the things that they have done are morally 
impugnant to God. Oh, sometimes people will be willing to say they made some mistakes. Or that they had done some things that, that probably weren't the wisest things to do. And they may even regret some of their choices as not being the most beneficial or helpful. But all too often, people don't like to take upon themselves this word that they are sinful. And certainly that this sinfulness deserves condemnation. That this sinfulness deserves destruction. That this sinfulness is of such a nature that God is right and holy and just in holding us accountable. So the Ninevites were really unique because they accepted this characterization of themselves. And they were willing to act upon this statement concerning their, their evilness. So they truly believed. The second transformation is that they humbled themselves before God and others. This belief caused them to humble themselves before God and others. Now, this city is described in our text as a great city. It was a powerful city. It was a wealthy city. It was a mighty city. The Assyrians were a military juggernaut. No one was able to withstand them. They were able to conquer all the peoples round about them. This mighty, great city was willing to humble themselves and not trust in their own military to deliver them, not to trust in their king to deliver them, not to trust in their wealth to deliver them. They humbled themselves and recognized that the only hope that they had a deliverance was from God. Now, notice some characteristics of this humility. First, they humbled themselves in their uh, totality. Jonah 3, 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, in their humility, as I said, they did not rely upon themselves, but they relied upon God. It says that they were to hold a fast and put on sackcloth. Uh, to put on sackcloth. Sackcloth was a thick, coarse, uncomfortable cloth normally made from goat's hair. The putting on sackcloth was to repudiate that which was comfortable, that which was pleasurable, that which was desirable. They were to put off that which they had and put on this sackcloth. And they humbled themselves in their totality. For it says, from the greatest of them to the least of them. Regardless of their intellectual attainments, regardless of their economic standing, and even regardless of their social position. It says, from the greatest of them to the least of them. 
The humbling of the greatest of them to the least of them is illustrated in the actions of the king. Notice verse 6. The word reached the king. Certainly the king is the greatest of them. And even this king humbled himself. The king accepted what Jonah had to say. Even the kings of Israel often rebelled against the prophets. Often the priests, uh, excuse me, often the kings of Israel even imprisoned the prophets or caused the prophets to be put to death when they did not prophesy what they wanted to hear. But this foreign king acts in a way that is quite different from many of the Israelite kings. He humbled himself. And he humbled himself in five ways. Let's go through these quickly. First, the king humbled himself by rising from the throne, verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and here's the number one, and he arose from his throne. He literally got up from his throne. This was an act of abdication. This was a formal way of saying that he was acknowledging his limitations as a king. That he was unable as a king to bring about the deliverance that this city needed. He didn't call people to trust in him. He didn't call on people to put their faith in their military might. He got up from his throne. Secondly, he humbled himself by removing his robe. Verse 8, he removed the robe. The robe was the symbol of power and might and majesty. It was the way in which they would clothe themselves to demonstrate that they were unique and separate from the people. That the king was like no other. And of course, it was displayed in this majestic robe. He took that off. Again, it's a symbolic demonstration that he was no different than the people. Thirdly, the king humbled himself by putting on sackcloth. Verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth. That is what the people had done in verse 5. That's what he calls for even the people to do to the animals in verse 8. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. To demonstrate the totality of this this need, okay, so that even their animals are going to be humbled and be put on sackcloth. So here is a king that is going to dress himself like he's telling them to dress his animals. It's a remarkable physical demonstration of humility. Then lastly, the king humbled himself by sitting in the ashes. What a long way from sitting on the throne. Notice the end of verse 6. Covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. That was a very common thing to do uh, in the uh, Old Testament era when someone was repentant. They would don themselves with sackcloth, which, which demonstrated uh, this humility by putting on something that was coarse and commonplace. 
as opposed to that which was comfortable and majestic, and sit in, in ashes. It's a symbol of having lost everything. It's a symbol of having nothing to provide or to bring. Not like a, a throne of power, but ashes. Ashes of things that have been spent, burned up. All is reduced to ashes. It's a picture of unworthiness, of having nothing to, of value to offer to God. It is presenting nothing but sitting in base humility. It's a way of saying, I have nothing. This king realized that there was no way out for him. There was no resource. All that he had was useless in averting this judgment that was coming from God. Fifthly, the king humbled himself by his appeal to the people. Notice verses 7 through 9. And I could have subdivided this as well, but I didn't do so for sake of time this morning. So let's look at it as a whole. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so we may not perish. He did not offer the people a false hope. He did not say to the people, trust in me, I will deliver you. He did not try to save face before his nobles. But he included the nobles in this edict to call upon the people. He made it clear to the people that God and God alone could bring this deliverance and that he needed their help in securing the deliverance from God. That this leader, this all-powerful individual is saying, we need to pray. We need to cry out unto God. We need to trust fully in him. That is true Humility. That is true recognition of our limitations. <clears throat> so often it is that people want to trust in their material goods. People want to trust in their leaders. People want to trust in their military. People want to trust in their education. People want to trust in so many things that they think is going to deliver them and change the course of the destruction that they are on. But the one thing that can bring about that change, they are unwilling to humble themselves and do. And that is to cry out for God for help. Which brings us to the third transformation among the Ninevites. And that was that they prayed earnestly to God. Jonah 3.8 But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Mightily. That is, they were to pray forcefully, with energy, with faith. Not in a half-hearted effort. They were not simply to go through the motions. Uh, we have had, at periods of time, in our nation, when our president has called for us to pray. Uh, I think after 9-11, uh, President Bush 
called on us to pray. There was a national day of prayer that was asked that uh, churches would remain open, that people could go and to pray. After the Columbine shooting, there were calls for people to pray. It's interesting that more recently, people are saying we need to do more than pray. Uh, We need to do more than simply pray if we are going to expect changes in this country. Well, this king was calling on people to pray, but it wasn't a half-hearted effort. It wasn't just a a symbolic move on his part. It wasn't just a statement to appease people. This was a heartfelt, earnest calling upon God. He says, let everyone mightily call to God. And it wasn't simply to call to a God. It wasn't simply, I want everyone to cry out unto your God. Now, realize that that in Assyrian worship, there were many gods. There were many different deities that they, they worshiped. But this call was a call to cry out unto the God of Jonah. The God who delivered this message. It wasn't a ubiquitous call, such as go to your church, go to your synagogue, go go to your place of worship, go to wherever it is that you have some kind of religious affiliation and pray. That's the call to prayer that we get in our nation today. Go to wherever it is you go, and call upon whatever it is is your God to help us. That was not the call of the king of Nineveh. Don't cry out to Molech. Cry out to God. The God of Jonah. The God who's going to bring this destruction. The God that they believed in. Now, because of the message of Jonah. The God who was going to bring all of this to pass. They were to appeal to him for deliverance. For it says, who knows? Who knows whether he will relent? Number four. The fourth transformation among the Ninevites was to turn from their sinfulness. To turn from their sinfulness. Verse eight. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily God. And now this, let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. Note how their actions are characterized. I said earlier that they were willing to accept that characterization. They were willing to humble themselves and say, yes, we are, we are wicked. Yes, we are sinful. But now, not only are they willing to accept the characterization, but they're willing to do something about it. He's saying, if we're going to be destroyed because of our wickedness and our sinfulness, let's stop being wicked. Let's stop being sinful. Let's let's turn this evil away. As I said, the evil is the same word that's used in Jonah chapter 1, verse 2. It is a word that speaks of this moral repulsion on the part of God, that was unacceptable to God. And then further characterized as violence. 
violence. As the king tries to summarize the nature of their violent, their nature of their evil, is that he recognizes that they have been harsh and oppressive. The Assyrians were one of the cruelest regimes on the face of the earth. The things that they would do to their captives when they uh, took them in battle were, were horrendous. They wouldn't just kill them. They would take great joy in humiliating them in the way that they killed them and extracting great pain from them in the way that they, they killed them. They, they were truly harsh, oppressive, miserable. They delighted in causing others to experience pain and hardship. This king realized that if they were going to experience mercy from God, they had a responsibility to change their behavior and conduct to extend mercy to others. It's remarkable what this king understood from a simple message that was proclaimed by Jonah. But that's what belief does. Belief causes people to be aware. People, belief causes people to accept their moral weaknesses, their sinfulness, and seek to do better. Seek to live to the honor and glory of God. The fifth transformation among the Ninevites is that they obtained God's mercy. What is verse 10? When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, now these words, God relented of the disaster that he said would, he would do to them, and he did not do it. So God did not destroy them, as he said he was going to destroy them. Uh, these 40 days that destruction was going to come, because they believed and humbled themselves and repented before God, God did not destroy them. Many of the commentaries like to focus on what they see as a theological crisis in this particular portion of Scripture, a moral dilemma on the part of God, and that is how could God say that he was going to destroy the people and then 40 days later not destroy them? Well, it isn't as hard as the theologians like to make it. The first thing that we have to understand, and it's very important, is that Jonah's message is not a prophecy. It's a proclamation of warning. There's a world of difference. It's not a prophecy. It's a proclamation of warning. What he said was, he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. We are to recognize in the word of God that God's judgment is conditional. Let me say that again. God's judgment is conditional. The fact that God's judgment is conditional is clearly revealed in numerous portions of the scriptures, but I will give you just one. 
Listen very carefully. Jeremiah 18, verses 7 and 8. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up, break down, and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent, same word, of the disaster that I intended to do it. God says clearly, if I proclaim judgment on a kingdom, on a nation, and if that nation repents of the evil that I have done, then I will not destroy them. I will relent. That's exactly what happens in the book of Jonah. All the conditions are met. The basis of that goes all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy and flows through the entirety of the Old Testament. Now, did the Ninevites know about Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 and 8? I doubt it. I doubt it very much. It is why they say in uh, in the book of Jonah, who knows whether or not God will relent. They were hoping, but they didn't have any real confidence that God would relent, that God would be merciful, that, that God would... forgo the punishment that they were under. Uh, They had a hope. They didn't have any confidence whatsoever. This stands in stark contrast to Jonah himself. Now, it's important that we look at Jonah chapter 4, starting with verse 1. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. The it where it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, was God's relenting. It was God's failure to destroy the city of Nineveh in 40 days. Jonah wanted to see the city destroyed. We will emphasize that next week and look at that in detail. But Jonah wanted to see the city destroyed. And the result of Jonah was that he was angry Verse 1. Angry at God for not destroying the city. And then he says this in verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting, same word, from disaster. Jonah knew that his message was a proclamation, not a prophecy. Jonah knew that if the people would relent, they'd be spared. Jonah knew that God was merciful. Jonah knew that God was gracious, and Jonah expected the children of Israel, uh, excuse me, the children of Nineveh to repent and be spared. And that's why he didn't want to go. 
Because he didn't want to be an instrument of God's grace. He didn't want to be an instrument of God's mercy. He didn't want to see these people spared. He wanted to see them destroyed. He hated the Ninevites for all that they had done to Israel. My point to you is he understood the character of God. He understood judgment. He understood repentance. He understood the outcome. There is no theological quandary here. There is no moral problem here. This is a consistent way in work, way in which, which a sovereign, holy God works. He warns of judgment. If people relent, they're spared. If people do not relent, uh, excuse me, if people do not repent, they do not believe, they do not do all that is in association with that belief, then they are going to indeed be destroyed. No moral quandary or theological problem. Certainly, there should be none for us, for we have Jeremiah 18. We have the testimony of, of Jonah. We should understand the passage. Conclusion. What are we to learn from this passage? Well, the discussion of warning and judgment in this passage should lead us to the recognition of several key points. First, this passage refers to the seriousness of sin as well as the certainty of God's judgment. Nineveh was an exceedingly wicked and violent city, and this did not escape God's notice. In that age, as well as in every age, God recognizes and condemns what is unholy and what is unjust. We ought to recognize the oppression of people. We ought to recognize the injustices that surround us. There are many wonderful things that can be said about our nation. But we need to understand that in the sight of God, we are a wicked people that stand in need of forgiveness. And if we're going to see transformation, we can't rely on our wealth, we can't rely on our education, we can't rely on our elected officials, we can't rely on our military force, we can't rely on our police force, our only hope of moral transformation is God. And we must cry out to him and him alone. It's the only thing that's going to make a difference. That's ground zero. That's the starting point, people. It's belief in God. Nineveh was wise enough to believe God and not look to themselves, not argue with the characterization, not trust in their power or their might, but was willing to accept what God had said about them. So it too is with us. Secondly, God uses his people to take the message of judgment to those who are acting contrary to his will. That's us. God has given us a responsibility to take a message 
of judgment to the people of this world. So often we want to talk about God's love, we want to talk about God's mercy, we want to talk about how God loves us and cares for us. There are many people in the face of this earth and more and more people in the United States that don't even know about judgment. They don't even know that after they, are, they die, they're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There are so many people that think that when they die, they enter into an eternal relationship with God, that everybody's in heaven, that everybody's experiencing joy and happiness. And one of the reasons is because people have been unwilling to take the message of judgment. Even the majority of people that say they are evangelical Christians, the majority of people that say they are evangelical Christians don't believe in a hell. No wonder people aren't getting saved. No wonder people don't fear before God. We need to take a message that unless people repent, their utter destruction is coming. Maybe at that point we can begin to relate more with Jonah. Hopefully not because we don't want to see people spared. But maybe we don't want to take that message for other reasons. Maybe we'd rather go in the opposite direction than to take the message of judgment to our loved ones, to our friends, to our relatives. We don't want to be kooks. We don't want to be weird. We don't want to be negative. Maybe we have to go back to ground zero. Maybe we have to go back and look at where the Ninevites started, and that is they believed God. They didn't believe Jonah, they believed God. Don't expect people to believe us. Expect people to believe God. Don't expect people to respond because of who and what we are. Expect people to respond because God is sovereign and God works and God moves and God can humble the most proud. God can humble the most rich. God can humble the most self-sufficient. God can do a work in anyone. Let's believe that when we take the message of judgment, that God will work and he will bring people to a place of repentance. Lastly, the story of the Ninevites' repentance gives us hope for our nation and for our world. Here was a city characterized as wicked characterized as evil. A non-Israelitish kingdom that knew very little of the true and living God, 
who was steeped in false religion, who was a world power, that outwardly you would just think there would be absolutely no reason for this, this city to come to faith. In fact, they're on borrowed time and 40 days they're going to be destroyed. Seems kind of hopeless, doesn't it? But the oddity here is that Jonah believed that God was going to work. He just didn't want to see him work, but he believed that he would. Believed that it would. I have so much to say about that next week, so I'm not going to delve into that today. I just simply say to you, do you believe that God can change our nation? Do you believe that God can change our world? Or have you viewed everything as beyond hope? We are so far down the path that there's nothing that can change the trajectory. Have you given up on the gospel? Have you given up on the kingdom? Have you given up on God? And are you beginning to look to other places to see transformation take place? Jonah simply went with the message that God gave him. And the result was they believed God. Let us go with the message that God has given us of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let us believe that they will believe God. And if people believe God, it brings transformation. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the word of God. We pray for anyone here this morning who has never accepted Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, who never has believed that it's only through him and through him alone that sins are forgiven and they have access to God. Oh Lord, I pray that you would create faith and belief in their hearts. And I would call any that are here this morning that have never truly trusted in Jesus Christ that they would repent, that they would acknowledge their need, no matter how rich, no matter what their status is in the life of the church, no matter what position they hold, no matter who their relatives are, no matter what. There is no forgiveness that is to be had except through Jesus Christ. I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's without Christ, that today would be the day that they would humble themselves and say, yes, I need Jesus to be my Savior. If there's someone like that this morning, I'm not going to ask you to do anything public, but just so that I can know and pray for you and talk to you at your convenience. I'd like you to raise your hand just so I can be aware. Anyone this morning that would like to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, would you quickly raise your hand this morning, young or old? Lord, I pray that you would give us confidence in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. I pray that you would give us the ability to believe that that belief in God truly transforms a people, a society. Even as you've done this incredible work among the Ninevites, that they change their behaviors, they change their conduct, not just their attitudes, but in a very public, demonstrable way, they submitted themselves to your word. Oh Lord, I pray for that faith, I pray for that true, vital belief in God to permeate our society. Oh God, take the gospel 
and use it to your glory. Humble our nation. Humble our world. May we turn to you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.